Well, I hope you're doing well this week. This is Pastor Spencer joining you this week for our edition of Reading Through the New Testament. I hope you're doing well. Um, We are here in week 11. This is for the week of March 13th, and we are reading Luke 7 through 11. So 7-11, if you you like that. Um, Luke chapter 7 through Luke 11. Um, last week, you'll remember we talked in more about the uh, the background kind of of Luke's gospel, gave some of the um, key facts, right? Luke is a physician writing to Theophilus uh, to give him certainty and to uh, provide proof and, and uh, the certainty that what he's heard about who Jesus of Nazareth is, is correct. And that's what he's uh, uh, emphasizing here, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So uh, as, as Luke is going through uh, his gospel this week, and you know as we continue to go through it, think about this question. How does each thing Luke mentions and, and how he even says it? Think about that. Not even saying, not even what he says, but as you're reading the Bible, perhaps every so often ask yourself not only what he's saying, but how is he saying it? Um, how is he conveying this truth? How does this give certainty regarding the factualness of Christianity and regarding the truth of what Theophilus maybe has heard and what we are being taught about Christianity as well? Or maybe just have that question in your mind. Um, and, and also, why should a Gentile worship a Jewish man that the Jews themselves rejected? Um, maybe keeping those thoughts in your mind and in the background as you're as you're reading through Luke's gospel can give you a unique angle um, into reading it and asking yourselves questions that perhaps were on that Luke was wanting to address as well as he's writing um, his gospel. So last week we opened up Luke's gospel two through six. We well before we had chapter one, but really we talked more about it last week. And uh, this week we begin in chapter seven. We we talked as well about how there's a there's kind of a big break at nine fifty one chapter nine verse fifty one, where Jesus uh, things are before that it's his ministry his Galilean ministry uh, Peter confesses him to be the Christ as we're going to see today in chapter nine, and then in chapter nine verse fifty one really begins the second part of Luke's gospel where Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so the rest of it is just his, his journey, in a sense, his, his, the events now he's, he's heading towards. Everything's leading to Jerusalem and to his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. So as we read this week in chapter 7, as we begin chapter 7 here, right, um, Jesus has had controversy about the Sabbath, and he's performed healings um, and such like that. We begin in chapter 7, continuing with Jesus' teaching and healing ministry in Galilee. Um, And this is going to continue in 7 and in 8. Jesus will calm a storm. We see um, that that beautiful story where this sinful woman in chapter 7 is forgiven. and then in chapter 9, we see Jesus, uh, he feeds the 5,000, before eventually we read about Peter's confession in chapter 9 that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Jesus begins to tell them, yeah, now I'm going to die on the cross, right? Um, I'm going to be raised up on the third day. You need to follow me. And then tells them about his 
and then shows them at the transfiguration, shows Peter, James, and John his uh, glory that has been uh, veiled, so to speak, uh, in, in during his earthly ministry. And so then as we then turn from chapter 9, verse 51, all the way through the rest of chapter 9, we have Jesus, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and he calls his disciples now uh, to follow him. Uh, the first part of chapter 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, we see Jesus sending the 70 or the 72 ahead of him, um, and he he instructs them. And then we also have his, at the tail end there, his interaction with Mary and with Martha, um, and um and uh and and so on like that his his remember he he tells uh, Martha that she's worried about too much and and Mary has chosen the good things by sitting there and listening to Jesus and then in chapter 11 we have Jesus teaching his disciples about prayer and the, the and the experience of hostility um that he has as well with the Pharisees so what can we learn here from these passages of scripture as we're we're kind of um going to go notice 951 uh, chapter 9, verse 51, is kind of like a hinge point in the gospel. Remember remember with Mark's gospel, how the first half was Jesus is the powerful son of God, um, and then the second half is Jesus is the son of God, who's also the suffering servant. Well, kind of like, and, and the middle of that was, was in the middle of chapter 8, if you'll remember that. Well, here in chapter 9, verse 51, we kind of have a similar hinge point. Before, all of his ministry is showing Jesus who he is, his ministry, but then especially at 9.51, chapter 9, verse 51, he's setting his face to go to Jerusalem. So now there's a special focus now, zooming in, and everything that Jesus is doing is on the way to Jerusalem. Um, a powerful image. And, uh, and so that's kind of the way Luke is structuring uh, his gospel. And so we're kind of starting this week, we're going to do seven um, and eight and the first part of nine, right? That are, that are kind of before 951. And then after 951, we're going to go into 10 and 11. So we're kind of on that um, hinge point in the gospel of Luke as we're reading this week. We're kind of before and after those that important verse. And um, just kind of know, kind of for your mental uh, mind that's helpful for me at least, and maybe it is for you to know. That's kind of where we're going now um, uh, in Luke's Gospels we read this week. So what can we know and, and think about as we read these verses, as we read these chapters this week? What are some things that we can glean and, and meditate on? Well, one of the most powerful stories I, I think we all uh, it, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful story, is the story of the sinful woman forgiven in chapter 7, the last half of chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And you'll remember the story. She's uh, Jesus is uh, sitting at a Pharisee's house. He's eating. And then this woman of the city who's a sinner, probably a notorious sinner, um, comes up and begins to anoint Jesus's uh, feet um, she's weeping, and she wipes his feet with her tears and kisses his feet. Um, and this makes the Pharisee uncomfortable, and he brings it up, and uh, you know, and says, yeah, "You, if you were a prophet, you'd know what kind of a woman she is." And then uh, Jesus says, "Hey, I've got something to tell you, Simon." And he tells him basically this, and uses a parable to say, um, "Someone who has been forgiven of much sin is going to love much more." You see, Simon here, the uh, Pharisee, didn't think he needed much to be forgiven, probably, and so he didn't love the Lord Jesus very much. But this woman, 
who knew who she was and what she had done and the shame and the guilt she had brought upon herself. She knew who she was, and she knew who Jesus was to her. And therefore, she loves him very much. And she's willing to, to do whatever and put herself in the lowest place in order to see and to serve her Lord. And Jesus uh, says, um, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, we read, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want to, Spurgeon has a, has a powerful uh, sermon called Go in Peace from that one verse, uh, verse 50 of chapter 7. And um, uh, he, he divides it into two basic parts, an assurance that he gives to this woman, thy faith has saved you, thy faith has saved thee, an assurance. And then he gives her a, a dismission, go in peace. So he's, that's kind of the two parts of his sermon, an assurance and a dismission. Um, I want to read what Spurgeon says about this latter part of the dismission, um, go in peace. And he says this, <clears throat> what did our Lord mean by saying this? This is Spurgeon, of course. I think he meant first, Quit this place of controversy and go in peace. Do you notice that it was when those who set at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? That he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. See the black looks of those Jews, those Pharisees round about Simon's table. Why? They are as sour as vinegar and full of all kinds of skepticism. So the Savior says to the woman, Go home, good soul, away from all of them. So, dear friends, whenever you meet with a book that is full of skepticism and unbelief, especially you who have lately found the Savior, you had better throw it away. Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Unbelief will be no help to thee. Thy faith hath already saved thee. Then what more dost thou want? Thou hast the assurance within thine own soul that thou art saved. Do not go anywhere or do anything to damage that assurance. I do not think it is worth while to go through a horse pond and get covered with filth just for the pleasure of being afterwards washed. It may be that some strong man, like another Samson, may have to go in among the Philistines and pull their temple down about their ears, but poor Hannah could not do that, and those who are like her, the women of a sorrowful spirit, had better go home and get out of the way of that set of wranglers. They may be even be wrangling professors, squabbling about this doctrine and that, and perhaps not understanding any of them properly. So the Savior says to you, You have the assurance of salvation. Do not let anybody worry you out of that. Go in peace. This is what the Apostle means when he says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Then, okay, so the first part there, what is he saying? I think he's saying, listen, don't let them shake your faith in me. And sometimes that's a very true thing, right? There are certain people and certain believers who are gifted um, to read things that maybe um, are the skepticism and unbelief, right? And sometimes there may be a there is a place for that. Um, I don't want to say there's not a place for that, but what he's giving here is this Spurgeon here is giving here right away is to say, but for this woman right here that we're reading about here in this passage, and in a sense, if we're like this woman. Um, 
it might be better for us to stay away from that stuff. Not that we're afraid of facts, but um, this woman, right, um, she needed to just simply hear the truth of, from Jesus' lips. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You don't need to deal with this anymore. Don't worry about this stuff anymore. You trust me. And for some people, uh, that is that is really what they need to hear. They need to know the assurance of their salvation. And don't let anybody else worry you about all these other doubtful disputations. Spurgeon continues under this part. Then next, I think our Savior meant his words to this to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace, to be a kind of dismission of her case from the court. Here is Simon, in thought accusing her, and thinking that she ought not to be permitted to come and touch the master's feet. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ, not only becoming a pleader for her, but deciding the case in her favor, as he says to her, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. This was in effect saying, Your case is dismissed. There is nothing against you. The court clears you. Go home, good soul. What a mercy it is when the Lord speaks thus to anyone. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? Christ has given us our dismission from the court of justice. So let us go in peace. May not our Lord also have meant something more than we see upon the surface of these words. May he not have meant, Go home in peace to thy daily avocations. Ah, she had done a deal of mischief in that home of hers by by her sin, for there never was a fallen woman who brought a blessing to her family while she lived in sin. And now that the Savior has given to her the assurance of salvation, he says to her, Go home and attend to your ordinary household duties. Go and act as a woman should. Fulfill your part as a mother or a daughter or a servant or whatever your calling may be. Go in peace. Do you not also think that this dismissory word would would last her as long as she lived, and that all her life through, she would seem to hear the Savior saying to her, Go in peace? Perhaps she was to go upstairs and lie there ill, but she was to go in peace. Possibly she was to come down and to confront opposition and persecution. If so, she was still to hear this message, Go in peace. I think that word would come to her every morning as soon as ever she woke, and when she was about to close her eyes and go to sleep, she would still hear it. With such a gracious message as that, she could even go through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. It may be that is just what the Lord meant it for, that when she came to die, and she may have died a martyr's death, we cannot tell. At any rate, whenever she came to die, this message was ringing in her ears, Go in peace. Spurgeon continues here, the practical point that I want to bring home to you Christian people, to you who are saved, is this. Beloved friends, as you go to your families, as you go through life, as you go into eternity, I pray you to go in peace. It is heaven begun below to possess the peace of God which passeth all understanding. Peace should be the continual portion of all believers. This is what the angels sang when our Lord Jesus appeared on earth. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And as it was at the beginning of our Savior's life, so it was at the end. For this was our Lord's legacy to all his disciples. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. That which gives one of his titles even to God himself, for he is called the God of peace, should be very precious to your soul. Peace is the fit result of what the Savior has done for you. Has he forgiven you? Then you have peace. Has he saved you? 
Oh, then feel an inward peace which none can take from you. Did he die for you? Then you can never die, in the full meaning of the word, so be at rest about that matter. Has he risen for you? Then because he lives, you shall live also. So let not your heart be troubled, but be at peace. Will he come again to receive you unto himself? Oh, then, let your peace be like a river flowing from the very throne of God. Well, that, that was I think that's a beautiful section of Scripture that Spurgeon there preaches from. And, and notice the, the, different cat, the different angles that he's trying to look at that phrase, go in peace. And I, and I like that, especially that part where he says, go in peace, because your case has been dismissed from the court. Here's the, Jesus here is, uh, is fending off her accusers, those who would prosecute a case against her, like this Pharisee Simon. He says, no, 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 she's cleared now. She's justified. She is right with the law of God, right with God. You can go in peace now. You are dismissed. Your case is dismissed. But also, it's almost as if he tells her as well, right? Go in peace. Sin no more. Love your family. And isn't that so wonderful? The gospel frees us. Jesus Christ, speaking this word to us, go in peace, frees us to not only be accepted with God, but now to go forth and live our lives in this world. I mean, think about it. What, how would you live your life if, how would this woman continue about her life if she always thought she was having to get back into God's good favor or somehow make up for what she had done or to uh, always just wondering about her standing? But Jesus tells her, go in peace. And that now frees her to go home and to live a life of faith and repentance. It, it allows her now to change. True repentance can never really come about until we first hear this truth, go in peace. It's whenever we hear the phrase, go in peace, and that our sins are forgiven, that in light of that and because of that, we are now able to put to death the things that once characterized us in our old lifestyle and put on and and live in the new lifestyle that Jesus calls us to embrace in him. And so I think that's a, that's a beautiful passage, go in peace. And perhaps you're struggling today and you wonder, um, I, I don't know, you're, you're down or you're, or you're struggling in this or that way. Just meditate upon these words. Your sin is forgiven you. Go in peace. If you are resting upon that Jesus who says those things to you, as he said those things to this woman, if you are looking to her, then you can go in peace. I'm not saying your circumstances will all change, but you can know, just like this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Just look to Jesus. Okay, the next section I want to focus on is that section we've been talking about often here, um, after Peter's confession and the transfiguration, and Jesus here, we read, um, that he, uh, when, the, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And J.C. Ryle has a helpful section here talking about that specific instance here and what it means for us and um, for you, for, for in Jesus' case and for us. Um, he writes this, Let us notice in these verses the steady determination with which our Lord Jesus Christ regarded his own crucifixion and death. We read that when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew full well what was before him, the betrayal, the unjust trial, the mockery, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the spitting, the nails, the spear, the agony on the cross. 
all. All were doubtless spread before his mind's eye, like a picture. But he never flinched for a moment from the work that he had undertaken. His heart was set on paying the price for our redemption and going even to the prison of the grave as our surety. He was full of tender love towards sinners. It was the desire of his whole soul to procure for them salvation, and so for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Hebrews 12.2 Forever let us bless God that we have such a ready and willing Savior. Forever let us remember that he was as ready that he that as he was ready to suffer, so he is always ready to save. The man that comes to Christ by faith should never doubt Christ's willingness to receive him. The mere fact that the Son of God willingly came into the world to die and willingly suffered should silence such doubts entirely. All the unwillingness is on the part of man, not of Christ. It consists in the ignorance and pride and unbelief and half-heartedness of the sinner himself. But there is nothing lacking in Christ. Let us strive and pray that the same mind may be in us which was in our blessed Master. Like him, let us be willing to go anywhere, do anything, suffer anything when the path of duty is clear and the voice of God calls. Let us set our faces steadfastly to our work when our work is plainly marked out and drink our bitter cups patiently when they come from a father's hand. Well, that, that, is, that really helpfully captures what's happening here, I think, in verse 51 of chapter 9. Jesus' steady, unflinching determination to go to Jerusalem to die and raise from the grave. This is a picture to us of his great love to us. And he did this, friends, before any of us were on the scene on earth. He did it before we asked him to do it. We never asked him to come down from heaven. We never asked him to die for us. We never asked him to be so dead set to go to Jerusalem for us. He did that all willingly, of his own free accord, without being asked. That shows how loving and compassionate he is. It also shows us, as, as, I, as I like to say, God is more interested in our salvation than we are. God cares that you're saved more than you do. And as J.C. Ryle points out, there is no unwillingness on Jesus' part. All of the unwillingness is on our part. It's on man's part. In our pride, our unbelief, our arrogance, um, our half-heartedness, as he says. All of that is on our part. We simply need to receive and look to him and come to him as he is given to us, as he gives himself to us in his gospel. And so as we, as we hear the gospel preached at church, as we pray to him, as we live our lives for him and for his sake, we're living for a man and in him and coming to worship him with other saints. We're coming to this Jesus, the one who set his face to go to Jerusalem. He is just as ready to save as he was to suffer. And so when we can take the gospel, we can take the gospel message to our friends, to our neighbors. Um, We can invite them to church in this confidence, in this confidence that Jesus Christ is ready to save them. And, And it's a wonderful thing to think about evangelism in the sense of which, um, All we're doing is passing on the words of Christ to them. It's God's word that saves. It's the Holy Spirit who saves. It's Jesus' blood that purchased salvation. 
We are simply the instruments in his hand to pass along and to convey that truth. And the Lord Jesus is ready and willing to save. He is powerful and able to save. And we see his steady determination. And likewise, I agree. I think there's another thing that we can pull from this as well is we need to be we need to have that steady determination too when the path of duty is clear. It doesn't mean that we're going to always, um, it's not always going to be a bed of roses, is it? It might be, um, it might mean receiving the thorns in the sense Jesus knew he was going to have to receive the crown of thorns. And similarly for us, we will have to bear the cross before we can wear the crown. As he, as Ryle here points out, we may have to drink our bitter cups patiently when they come from a father's hand. And it's a great comfort to know that it does come from the Father's hand, um, not from just any willy-nilly situation. Um, it comes from the hand of a loving Father. So let's let's learn from this, and let's see Jesus' determination here through the rest of, of Luke's gospel. Let's think about and, and, and notice and try to ask ourselves, where do I see more of this determination in Jesus um, to go to Jerusalem. And also maybe as you're reading the gospel of Luke as well, as we continue on now after ch- chapter 9, verse 51, look at the obstacles in Jesus's way. Um, maybe there are some that we, we will uh, notice and think about the willingness it took of Jesus to continue to go on the path that the Father had given him and that he himself chose voluntarily to walk upon for our sakes and see throughout that further the continued determination and love and commitment of our Lord Jesus Christ to the salvation of sinners. Um, Just think about that as you're reading the gospel. Um, That's what we're supposed to notice in the gospel. That's what we're supposed to take to heart is this man. Everything centers around the facts of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so we continue on here now into chapter 10, and we have a famous story from Luke's gospel, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, A teacher or a lawyer comes up to Jesus, asks him, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, well, um, because this guy's wanting to uh, earn it. Jesus says, well, uh, you know the law, Um, love God and love your neighbor. And then the, the man trying to justify himself, trying to show that, yes, I have done everything I need to do, says, but who is my neighbor? Who are the people that I have obligations to here? And Jesus gives a a parable about this man who goes and who is uh, injured and then shows uh, all these people, the priest, the Levite, who pass by on the other side, they they don't take care of the man, but a Samaritan who was despised by the Jews, a Samaritan comes along and shows compassion. And showing compassion to those in needy, everyone is your neighbor. And and as I've heard it said before, the better question isn't, who is my neighbor? But um, what kind of neighbor am I? And that's what we see here. This Samaritan is a compassionate man. And this also ties into... Um, it ties into uh, not simply what Jesus is telling this man to be, but it also highlights to us the kind of person that Jesus was. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. And here I'm stealing from Spurgeon. 
um, who preached a sermon again on Luke 10, 33, this verse where, um, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Uh, Spurgeon here has a sermon. It's called Good News for You. And he's highlighting uh, that, that this Samaritan came to, G- came to this man and came to where he was to heal him. And he was available. Um, he didn't ask the man to come to him. He came to the man to help him. And he's tying in that this is how God acts in salvation. He comes to us. And um, so, so listen to a little bit of this introduction to this sermon. And I think it's a helpful um, thing uh, to think about, not simply that Jesus here is calling us to be compassionate, but there's also a real sense in which we see that Jesus himself is the ultimate good Samaritan um, as well. <clears throat> he says this, The good Samaritan is a masterly picture of true benevolence. The Samaritan had no kinship with the Jew, He was purely of foreign origin, yet he pities his poor neighbor. The Jews cursed the Kuthites and would have no dealings with them, for they were intruders in their land. There was nothing, therefore, in the object of the Samaritan's pity that could excite his national sympathies, but everything to arouse his prejudices, hence the grandeur of his benevolence. It is not my intention this morning, Spurgeon writes, to indicate the delightful points of excellence which Christ brings out in order to illustrate what true charity will perform. I want you only to notice this one fact, that the benevolence which the Samaritan exhibited towards this poor, wounded, and half-dead man was available benevolence. He did not say to him, If you will walk to Jericho, then I will bind up your wounds, pouring in the oil and wine. Or, If you will journey with me as far as Jerusalem, I will then attend to your wants. Oh, no, he came where he was. And finding that the man could do nothing whatever for his own assistance, the good Samaritan began with him, then and there, upon the spot, putting no impossible conditions to him, proposing no stipulations which the man could not perform, but doing everything for the man, and doing it for him as he was and where he was. Beloved, we are all quite aware that a charity of which a man cannot avail himself is no charity at all. Go among the operatives of Lancashire and tell them that there is no necessity for any of them to starve, for on on the top of Mount St. Bernard there are hospital monks who keep a refractory where they relieve all passers-by. Tell them they have nothing to do but to journey to the top of the Alps, and there they will find food enough. Poor souls! They feel that you mock them, for the distance is too great. Penetrate one of our back streets. Climb up three pairs of stairs into a wretched room, so dilapidated that the stars look between the tiles. See a poor young girl dying of consumption and poverty. Tell her, if you dare, if you could get to the seaside, and if you could eat so much beefsteak, you would no doubt recover. You are shamefully laughing at her. She cannot get these things. They are beyond her reach. She, she cannot journey to the seaside. She would die before she reached it. Like the wicked, your tender mercies are cruel. I have noticed this unavailing charity in hard winters. People give away bread and soup tickets to poor people who are to give sixpence and then receive soup and bread. And often I have had persons come to me. Sir, I have a ticket. It would be worth a great deal to me if I had sixpence to go with it to get the relief. But I have not a farthing in all the world, and I cannot make out the good of giving me this ticket after all, or at all. This is hardly charity. Think you see Jeremiah down in the low dungeon. 
if Ebed-Melech and Baruch had stood over the top of the dungeon and called out to him, Jeremiah, if you will get halfway up, we will pull you out. When there was not a ladder, nor any means by which he could possibly get so far, how cruel would that have been this charity? But instead thereof, they took old rags from under the king's treasury and put them on ropes and bade him put the rags under his armholes and sling his arms through the ropes, and then they pulled him up all the way. This was available charity. The other would have been hypocritical pretense. Brethren, if in the description of a good Samaritan, Christ describes him as giving to this poor wounded man a charity of which he could avail himself, does it not seem to be strongly probable? No, even certain that when Christ comes to deal with sinners, he gives them available mercy, divine grace, which may be of real service to them. Therefore, permit me to say, I do not believe in the way in which some people pretend to preach the gospel. Now, I'm going to stop real quick here as we think about it. So what is Spurgeon saying real quick? And maybe you get a little lost in what he's saying. What he's trying to say is, it's no good to tell certain people, like if this Samaritan had come to this man and said, listen, I'll help you, but you've got to go do some stuff. We'll get to Jerusalem, right? The man was helpless. He was wounded. He couldn't move at all. So it, you can't go to this man, this, this man who's injured, and if the Samaritan had come to him and said, listen, if you can get to Jericho, then I'll help you. Or if you get to Jerusalem, then I'll help you. And he's also using other illustrations. And remember, Spurgeon was in Victorian England. He preached in London. So, um, you know, things in your mind come about when you think about the poor or you think about novels. I think about novels like Oliver Twist or things like that from around the Victorian period um, with poor people, right, who were who were struggling. And he's saying here, you can't just go to somebody who is poor or, or who is dying of poverty and um, and say, listen, if you could get to the seaside and eat some really good food, then you would recover from your sickness, what is Spurgeon saying? You can't tell them that because, listen, they can't go do that. You're not meeting their need where they're at. You're only telling them, oh, your mercies are cruel. And um, Spurgeon is saying that's, that's, um, that's, that's not being available. We need available benevolence, a love that comes to where we are. And he's saying that's what we see Jesus does to us. Jesus doesn't tell us, now, if you'll do this, and if you'll do that, and if you'll do this, then I'll heal you. No, he doesn't do that. He comes to where we are. He, he comes all the way to us. And that's kind of what Spurgeon is trying to say, and I hope that's making sense with my, my summary here. So um, he says this, therefore, permit me to say, I do not believe in the way in which some people pretend to preach the gospel. This is Spurgeon. They have no gospel for sinners as sinners, but only for those who are above the dead level of sinnership and are technically styled sensible sinners. Like the priest in this parable, they see the poor sinner and they say, He is not conscious of his need. We cannot invite him to Christ. He is dead, they say. It is of no use preaching to dead souls. So they pass by on the other side, keeping close to the elect and quickened, but having nothing whatever to say to the dead, lest they should make out Christ to be too gracious and his mercy to be too free. The Levite was not in quite such a hurry as the priest. The priest had to preach and might be too late for the service, and therefore he could not stop to relieve the man. Besides, he might have soiled his cassock or made himself unclean, and then he would have been hardly fit for the dainty and respectable congregation over which he officiated. As for the Levite, he had to read the hymns. He was a clerk in the church, and he was somewhat in a hurry. 
but still he could get in after the opening prayer, so he indulged himself with the luxury of looking on. Just as I have no minister say, Well, you know we ought to describe the sinner's state and warn him, but we must not invite him to Christ. Yes, gentlemen, you must pass by on the other side, after having looked at him, for on your own confession you have no good news for the poor wretch. I'm going to stop here real quick one more time. What Spurgeon is talking about is there are certain people, and you'll still run into this today, to say you can't offer Jesus as the Savior to somebody unless they realize, first of all, their need of him. Now, we do want to preach that people need to, to realize their need of Christ. We want to, And we call that the law, right? We want to preach the law to sinners, and they need to hear that. And we even need to hear the law even after we're converted. We don't deny that. But that also doesn't mean that we don't preach the gospel to them either. We preach the gospel to these people um, regardless of whoever they are. It does not matter. And as Spurgeon says, some people were so concerned and saying, listen, we can't preach Christ to these people because they don't think they're sinners yet. And Spurgeon is saying, you can, you know, they're, they're acting like the Levites who are going and just sticking with, the, with a certain group of people, but they're passing by this sinner who can do nothing to help himself. And uh, Spurgeon is saying, we mustn't do that. The gospel is free and full and open. And so he says here in a closing, this closing paragraph, I bless my Lord and Master. He has given to me a gospel which I can take to dead sinners, a gospel which is available for the vilest of the vile. I thank my Master that he does not say to the sinner, come halfway and meet me. But he comes where he is, and finding him ruined, lost, obdurate, he meets him on his own ground and gives him life and peace without asking or expecting him to prepare himself for grace. Here is, I think, set forth in my text, the available benevolence of the Samaritan. It is mine this morning to show the available grace of Christ. And that really gets what Spurgeon is is coming to, is Jesus in God, God does not send his son to us and say, listen, you come and meet me halfway. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, right? Um, uh, what's that phrase? You, you do something for God and he'll do something for you or uh, something like that. That's not the way the gospel works. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, listen, you meet me halfway. No, he says, um, I come all the way. I think Spurgeon quotes this, this beautiful hymn, um, from come ye sinners poor and needy. Um, and he says, um, uh, he says all the fitness he requires, or and he says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Um, and so what he's trying to say there is, you're not going to be able to make yourself clean enough to come to Jesus. You're not going to be able to believe enough in order to first come to Jesus. You simply need to look to him and trust him. Here he is, and he comes all the way to us to save us. He doesn't ask us to convict ourselves of sin enough or to change ourselves enough or to get serious enough or to be afraid enough or any of these conditions. He doesn't ask for qualifications, as Spurgeon points out, for moral um, you know, changing our moral life or our mental life. Some people feel like, I can't grasp all this stuff. Well, Jesus doesn't ask you to grasp everything. He asks you to look to the man on the cross. That's all. He doesn't ask you to have courage. He doesn't ask you to have any of these things. Everything that you lack, he freely gives. 
everything that you know that you ought to be, he freely gives you in himself without cost. And he comes to you first and meets you all the way. He comes where you are. That's the gospel we preach to sinners as well. Whenever we see people, we bring people, we want to encourage all sinners to come to the church service. Because at the church service, it's not because the building is holy or whatever. It is because it is there that the word is preached. And we see a special emphasis in the New Testament upon the Bible, upon the word of God being proclaimed and preached. And as it's preached, Christ is, is coming to them. Christ comes to them in the word as they read it at home. But there's, a, there's a, a unique way, a unique experience that happens when the word is preached. And Jesus is coming by the power of the Spirit, taking that preaching and applying it to sinners where they are at and he saves them we have a wonderful savior who comes over and bounds over the mountains and the valleys and the hills and all the things that we think would separate us he comes all the way and meets us there he comes where we are so that he can bring us where he is okay lastly i want to talk here about prayer because uh, chapter 11 has some beautiful things about prayer. And prayer, if you're like me, is something I neglect in my life. I feel it's not where I want it to be, and I have so much to learn. Um, and t- chapter 11 of Luke, the first half there, is a special uh, Jesus here giving us instruction about prayer. Um, and I want to give you a, a little section here that J.C. Rowe talks about promises to encourage us to pray. He says, we learn for another thing from these verses how wide and encouraging are the promises which the Lord Jesus holds out to prayer. The striking words in which they are clothed are familiar to us if any, uh, if any are in the Bible. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. The solemn declaration which follows appears intended to make assurance doubly sure. Everyone that asks receives and he that seeks finds and to him that knocks it shall be opened. The heart-searching argument, which concludes the passage, leaves faithfulness and unbelief without excuse. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? There are few promises in the Bible so broad and unqualified as those contained in this wonderful passage. The last in particular deserves especial notice. The Holy Spirit is beyond doubt the greatest gift which God can bestow upon man. Having this gift, we have all things, life, light, hope, and heaven. Having this gift, we have God the Father's boundless love, God the Son's atoning blood, and full communion with all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Having this gift, we have grace and peace in the world that now is, glory and honor in the world to come. And yet this mighty gift is held out by our Lord Jesus Christ as a gift to be obtained by prayer. Your heavenly Father shall give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. There are a few passages in the Bible, in the Bible, sorry, you know, sometimes you read and you have funny things. There are a few passages in the Bible which so completely strip the unconverted man of his common excuses as this passage. He says he is weak and helpless, but does he ask to be made strong? He says he is wicked and corrupt, but does he seek to be made better? He says he can do nothing of himself, but does he knock at the door of mercy and pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit? These are questions to which many, it may be feared, can make no answer. 
They are what they are because they have no real desire to be changed. They have not because they ask not. They will not come to Christ that they may have life, and therefore they remain dead in trespasses and sins. And now as we leave the passage, let us ask ourselves whether we know anything of real prayer. Do we pray at all? Do we pray in the name of Jesus and as needy sinners? Do we know what it is to ask and seek and knock and wrestle in prayer like men who feel that it is a matter of life or death and that they must have an answer? Or are we content with saying over some old form of words while our thoughts are wandering in our hearts far away? Truly, we have learned a great lesson when we have learned that saying prayers is not praying. If we do pray, let it be a settled rule with us never to leave off the habit of praying and never to shorten our prayers. A man's state before God may always be measured by his prayers. Whenever we begin to feel careless about our private prayers, we may depend upon it. There is something very wrong in the condition of our souls. There are breakers ahead. We are in imminent danger of a shipwreck. Well, those are closing thoughts Great promises to know that if we ask, we will receive. Again, God gives everything that we need, but also a good warning uh, to me and an, an admonishment to me and to you. What is our prayer life like? Do we know anything of real prayer? Are we asking, seeking, knocking, and wrestling in prayer like men who feel that it is a matter of life or death? Is that how we approach prayer? Or, um, and and are, we, are we looking to God? Are we praying to him? Are we in the habit of praying? And as J.C. Rowell says, a man's state before God may always be measured by his prayers. And each of us individually has to judge that for ourselves. And let's also use these, these things as motivation to convict us, not only to convict us, but also to motivate us that our Lord is ready to hear our prayers. Our Lord is ready for us to turn our eyes away from ourselves and from this world into his, into his eyes, into his face in Jesus Christ. He's ready to help. Remember Psalm, is it Psalm 81 or 80, where he says, um, if you would only open your mouth and I would fill it. God there is trying to tell his people, if you would but ask me, <laughs> I am ready to give. It's just that, you don't think you need it or you're not looking to me. Friends, let's look to, to God in prayer. Let's be people of prayer here at MNBC. Um, and a good reminder to us as a church, our, our spiritual health as individuals and as families and as a church, um, to a large degree, can be measured by the spiritual health of our prayer lives. Let's turn our attention to Christ because he's ready to give. Our Father is there. Our Holy Spirit is there. What more could we ask for? What a greater privilege is it to pray to God, to pray to the Savior who comes all the way to where we are, who, who um, set his face to go to Jerusalem, about whom we read in this gospel. Let's turn our attention to him and let our Bible reading turn us into prayers, people that will pray to God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, thank you for listening this week. Um, I hope this has been encouraging. Um, next week we will begin uh, Luke chapter 12 and continue our, our walk through Luke's gospel now as we're reading through the New Testament. Um, I hope this has been encouraging to you. 
I hope to, to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments or anything that you would like to talk about, um, maybe relating to the Bible reading plan or anything else, you know that we are always here at MNBC as, a, as your pastoral staff. We want to serve you, and we want to, to help you in your Christian walk, and as we all together seek to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So thank you for listening. Take care, and God bless.